right, everybody, welcome to the church split. Of course, you guys know what to do. Like, subscribe, all the internet stuff. And you guys, of course, know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge your status quo. That always needs challenging. And boy, oh boy, are we challenging a status quo today. <laughs> so uh, thank you all who are joining us live uh, currently. This was an off-the-cuff broadcast for me. Uh, me and David have been planning this for a while. So for those who do not know, David Paulman and I uh, are going to be reviewing James White's book. We're going to be taking after uh, Nick Quaint at, or Quaint, Quaint, I always get that mixed up, man. But he is in the chat right now, New Testament theologist. Go like and subscribe to his channel. Um, and he just subbed to me. He said he expects at least seven shout outs in this video. Uh, so we can definitely try to do that, I guess. Um, but he wants it like it's uh, special at Dillard's. <laughs> So, uh, of course, we also have Pixels of Light, my friend Joel. Uh, go check him out as well. Uh, his stuff, I don't know if you guys checked it out. It's funny animation. Uh, it's hilarious. And he oftentimes may or may not make fun of Kelvinists. So, um, <laughs> in a loving way, of course. So, with that being said, I think we need a few caveats today. David, you have become recently famous. <laughs> so, <laughs> could, do you want to explain to uh, the audience a little bit of the controversy and how this has nothing to do with that? Yeah, sure. In a nutshell, uh, I made a post uh, a week ago yesterday, yeah, that um, basically saying that I thought that basically Calvinists and precepts, most of their scholars were kind of shallow, uh, or at least a lot of them, a lot of the prominent ones were, and um, that, yeah, I just, I, I, it was an exhortation for them, you know, don't be taken in by rigor that tells you what you want to hear, make sure there's actually sound argumentation behind it, and it was just a short post, it was like one paragraph, it was a hot take, I didn't really think much was going to come of it, but uh, yeah, some people in the Calvinist community didn't like it, most notably Dr. James White who, um, yeah, more or less, he made a big long post about it. And uh, the gist of it was that because I work at Dillard's and I'm under 25, that, you know, my opinion just can't count for anything. Uh, so just so people know, this review doesn't have anything to do with that controversy. Uh, this We've been planning this since uh, last year. Uh, and this is just when we finally got all of our notes together on it. Uh, and so, yeah, it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with hating on, um, you know, on James White. Uh, but there, there'll definitely be some sassiness and some spiciness. I can guarantee that. Well, of course, because of the church split. If there's no spiciness, is there any reason to watch it? You know, that's <laughs> no, that's that's one thing I did want. We did want to make clear. We were planning this since 2021, folks. Okay, um, but hey, if y'all, it makes y'all come out and check us out. That's cool. Um, otherwise, uh, David is a long friend of the channel. Uh, so we've had him on a couple of times and uh, we'll probably continue to have uh, good relations with him. So of course, check out uh, his YouTube channel, Faith Because of Reason, because that's also another thing that you got accused of never citing the work in your post. Like he never cited uh, Benson. He never cited any of these people. I'm like, no, he just has an hour long video citing all these people and talking about the problems within their thinking. So. But that's not my business. Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, that's that's the thing there. Um, also, uh, 
we are, of course, we're going to be getting spicy because we are both ardently not Calvinistic. Uh, I'm sure David and I have disagreements theologically somewhere. Uh, but the point is, is that when I'm going to be giving from my perspective, he'll begin from his perspective, and we'll just go from there. Is there anything else you wanted to share, David? Uh, yeah, a couple things. So yeah, I mean, yeah, you gave one of uh, those qualifiers that we are both non-Calvinists. And so even if we have some differences, right, like I'm, I'm very much a classical Arminian, you're sort of like a Molinist Arminian, even though like, I don't oppose Molinism. I just, I feel like you might make a little more use of it than I do. And like, that's totally fine. But you know, some of that may come out in how we interpret some of the biblical mm -hmm. passages and stuff. Uh, I think I'm a little friendlier to, you know, being okay with using the term total depravity. I think you'll want to shy away from that, you know, yep. and that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll give, you know, our nuances and our understandings. The point is we're two non-Calvinists coming together and reviewing uh, this book, which we should also probably talk about a little bit why we picked this book, because this is not the best defense of Calvinism out there. Um, people who really want to understand Calvinism not the first book I'm going to point you to. The reason we're reviewing it is because it's so popular um, out there among people in the Calvinist community. It's like, it's like the book that's meant to defend it. And so the reason we're going after it is not so much because we think that this is the best that the Calvinists have to offer. Uh, at least for my part, it's just because it's so popular, right? It's like William Lane Craig going after the God delusion, not because it was a great book defending atheism, but because it was a bestseller, right? So right. that's similar to the mindset that we have here. We're going after what could be considered low-hanging fruit just because it, it might be low-hanging fruit, but it's popular fruit. So that's why right. it needs to be addressed. I do. I agree with that, and that's exactly why we have talked about because it it's always that and Sproul. Like these are the, those are two. Uh, it's always James White's book and the, Sproul said this. Those are the two things. Oddly enough, Sproul does the forward in the book, um, which is just funny. So I'm like, ah, of course it, he does. So yeah, this is like you said. It's because it's extremely popular in the Calvinist community. And I'm not gonna lie. When I first picked up this book. So I'm not a Calvinist, and I was for a long time going, there's no way I'll probably ever be a Calvinist. Um, but if the textual evidence, if someone can convince me of it, I will be one. Um, I just feel like there's a lot of issues within it. So when I picked up this book, I, was, I went in and I was like, all right, James White said, if I read his book, he'll come back on and talk about it. Maybe I'll have him on, maybe I won't, but I should at least read his book because everyone else has read it. So as a good theologian, I should. And I was expecting to be like, oh man, I'm gonna have to get some really, I've got to come get really creative if I have to, like uh, to avoid some of his arguments because of how ardently Calvinistic he is. And if this is the book that's toted around. I expected this one to be the knockout drag out. And there wasn't actually anything that, that was that different actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went in, I was like, oh, we'll see. Uh, and if, if it convinces me, cool, but if not, mm, and I'm not convinced, so. With that being said, also everyone, yes, if the obvious, I should mention, I did shave my beard. It's it's all gone. Um, I'm going to Florida this week and I wanted to feel the summer wind on my face. I'm in Michigan, guys, it's cold as heck. Um, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. So I did bring it all down. Don't worry, it will be back. But um, so with that I, being said, go ahead. Well, I also thought just, um, we should also mention that the book's a response to Norman Geisler Neither right. of us are defending Norman Geisler. I think no, plenty of one of us. Yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah, I just say I think plenty of plenty of White's critiques of Geisler, they're completely valid. 
Um, so yeah, Geisler's book, Chosen But Free. I recommend that people read Chosen But Free because Chosen But Free is kind of, it was an important book in shaping the debate. But uh, so yes, read Chosen But Free by all means, but it's not a good book. Um, I would, yeah, put Potter's Freedom and Chosen But Free both kind of on the bottom shelf of soteriology books. But um, yeah, so I mean, we're not necessarily defending Geisler's point of view. Sometimes White really makes legitimate criticisms there. Uh, also, probably we should tell him that this is going to be a four-part review. Yes, this is not going to, we could not possibly sit down and this whole thing uh, in one chunk. You and I are wordy people. We have a lot to say. So yeah. we're, we're going to be doing it in chunks. Uh, and this is going to be as we can, because I'm a, Dave is busy. I'm extremely busy. We would have done this sooner, but I'm busier, I think, sometimes than David. And so David's like, hey, I'm ready. I'm like, I'm not. I, I need time. <laughs> so I uh, appreciated David's patience as we threw this together. Um, also, guys, I will be using my phone with the notes because my wife is in Florida. And uh, she took the iPad, as to my knowledge. So uh, I will be using my phone. So I'm not going to be, I'm not rude over here, like texting and be like, yeah, David, that's a cool thought. But <laughs> hold on, I'm trolling on Twitter. So, <laughs> uh, all right. So, with that being said, let's jump into this bad boy. Yep, um, yep. Chapters one through it. four. Chapters one through four. We will be citing things that we can. So, uh, with that being said, I think it's important that we talk about how right off, right out of the gate, this book strong starts off with a strong misre misrepresentation of other people's views. Yeah. So, uh, page 34, folks, uh, Dr. White says, sadly, to this day, nominal, quote, scare quotes, Protestants embrace Molina's desperate attempt to get around God's freedom. I laughed when I read that part. Like, I, I, like, just out loud, I just straight up laughed. Um, like, let, let's just talk, first of all, putting it in scare quotes, right? It's like, Protestants. It, it, labeling them as nominal. So, like, White's, is he suggesting here that Molinists aren't really Protestants? And then, also, what, what's, like, middle knowledge is not a desperate attempt to get around, you know, God's freedom, which, you know, we're going to find out White basically just means determinism by freedom. Um, middle knowledge is an attempt to understand God's knowledge and man's free will. This is not an attempt to get around God's freedom. Correct. Uh, yeah, and so, I mean, it's just... White is using a very highly irregular definition of the word freedom, you know, equating it with determinism. Um, but this isn't an attempt to get around determinism. This is this is a flat out rejection of determinism. Molinism rejects, you know, causal determinism in the sense that the Calvinist does. We're not they're not trying to get around anything. Right. It's simply just saying that God uh, knows the he knows the middle of every choice, right? So he knows all the in betweens. What what if? What it could? What would? All that. And so that's that instantly annoyed me as someone who's like I've done extensive research and study in Molinism. I was instantly put off by that because I was like, well, that just misrepresented the group I usually would put plant my flag on. Um, so thanks for that. And it's only a view of God's knowledge. Like that's the other thing that Molinism is. It's nearly it is a view of how God's knowledge interacts with the will of man. It is not even saying that God's not free. In fact, that it affirms that God's free. And this happens a lot in this book and a lot in like uh, mainstream Calvinism. Uh, actually, I've uh, talked about this before, like mainstream Calvinism. Many people know us because we also had done things on the IFB. Similar things where it's like we're just going to fully misrepresent this view. And what ends up happening is that people start believing propaganda rather than actual study. 
So anyway, yeah, that it, uh, bothered me. I made the note of White is essentially saying that anyone who disagrees with his theology isn't a Protestant. He, he falsely frames uh, of what Molina was attempting to do, and is common, and this is a common course for this book, which has strong rhetoric, but I will make note that it has little substance. Yeah, and it doesn't get any better, right? We're, not, we're on the same page, still on page 34, and you've got the issue of God's absolute freedom, remembering again, white means determinism by that, and man's absolute dependence is in fact the very central issue of the entire Reformation, end quote. So, remembering again that White effectively defines God's freedom as theistic determinism, we can just see that the statement is plainly false. The central issue of the Reformation, at least in my opinion, is the role that Scripture plays in shaping our theology, with the Catholics sort of putting Scripture on equal footing with tradition, and with Protestants giving Scripture the highest authority. And so then by trying to make determinism the central issue, White is just thereby trying to set things up so that he can associate anyone who rejects determinism with the Catholic Church. And we see that all the time with people who don't agree with him. They're standing shoulder to shoulder with Rome, you know? It's just, it's just like his way of setting it up so that he can make constant association fallacies. Uh, but the non-Calvinist Protestant can and should staunchly reject White's characterization of the central issue of the Reformation as being determinism. Correct. Well, then all, all, what I was thinking, too, is like, okay, well, freedom, God's freedom does not necessitate determinism at all. In fact, one would say, I would say, argue that it actually undermines God's freedom because it means that God isn't able to be uh, exp uh, freely express himself in his creation without determining each and every little thing. So that actually seems like it actually lessens God. And so the other thing is here is what if God just freely chose in his freedom to create free creatures that that is entirely probable and one might even say more probable so i i find that to just be um again one of those laughable like okay why no one's denying god's freedom we affirm god's freedom everyone affirms god's freedom because he creates he has, he there's expression in creation so um hey oh what's up confident faith hello Jaden. what's going on buddy Good seeing you in the chat. Um, so uh, then also you should go sub to Confident Faith. David's also a friend with Jaden over there. He's friends with everybody, except for James White. Um, <laughs> uh, shoot. I mean, but I mean, when you're getting all your theology from the Reformation, you do get things like from Luther's bondage of the will that he does quote here. And I just wanted to read this real fast. Uh, Luther said, for if we believe it is true that God foreknows and foreordains all things, that he can be neither deceived nor hindered in his, pre uh, in his, in his prescience and predestination, and that nothing can take place but according to his will, which reason herself is compelled to confess, then even according to the testimony of reason herself, there can be no free will in man, in angel, or in any creature. So right here, we see that Luther is building his view off of Luther's, which is the fact there can be no free will, it must be causal determinism. So I uh, just want to make sure we're clear on that. So the other thought I had when it came to this little part here is that, like you said, the, the Reformation was not about God's sovereign determinism. Like you said, it was about the role of scripture. And when the 95 Theses were nailed to the Wittenberg door, you'll read, read the 95 Theses. Luther had a lot of problems and none of them mentioned causal determinism. 
Yeah. Actually, most of them were dealing with things like, uh, you know, indulgences, paying for people to get out of hell, things like that. So yeah. again, it's a, even a gross misrepresentation of the Reformation itself. Yeah. And the book is titled, like it's subtitled, A Defense of the Reformation and a Rebuttal of Norman Geisler's Chosen But Free. And White is already showing us he doesn't know what the Reformation is. So this is, this is a really bad start to the book. Mm -hmm. But, you know, progressing two more pages, right? Page 36, quote, one cannot claim to be faithful to the Reformation by crying sola fide, you know, means faith alone, when the foundation of that call is abandoned. End quote, page 36. Yeah. So one of the first things I want to uh, I want to shout out to my friend Jordan Ferrier. We just dropped a an episode with him today, and he said I cannot find any reference to the five solas before the Reformation. So I just want to throw that out there first off. So before someone's like, oh, sola fide, so the th calm down, okay, as far as church history is concerned. But also, faith alone, fine, okay, salvation through faith alone, I agree, but. To assume that sola fide means, again, that there must be causal determinism is a, how I don't know how faith alone has anything to do with determinism. Those are completely different categories. Am I wrong? No, not at all. <laughs> so to think or claim that Luther and the other reformers are the only ones who can claim faith alone when other theologians were saying the very same thing within also uh, the Catholic Church, by the way, if you look at some of the Reformation writings, other people were affirming that. And actually, Luther was Catholic. He didn't want to break away from the church. Uh, people need to understand that, too. It's not like he wanted to create his own denomination. Okay, his whole idea was to reform the Catholic Church, hence the name reformed. <laughs> so before people get too crazy, there's that. Um, so, uh, one should accept the premise of sola fide while denying, one can accept the premise of sola fide while also denying Luther's particular hermeneutic. That's like saying that one cannot affirm, uh, like ransom theory of atonement while disagreeing with origin on universalism. They're two totally different categories. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope people will realize that we are just picking out the absolute worst parts that like ticked us <laughs> off the most here. Like if we really wanted to respond to everything that White said, this re this review would take like years. So. 157 hours later. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it could go. If we, want, if we said everything we wanted to say. So like we are trying to show restraint here. So um, I know I, I, I violate your cardinal rule. I make marks in books. You and I have had that discussion. That You're is like, the unforgivable sin. Well, I'm sorry, I have sinned. Um, but it's funny because I actually underline in books, uh, and what's hilarious is the notes you sent me, so many of them were ones I underlined. And <laughs> I was like, wow, this guy is saying exactly all the things that popped out to me too. I just find that ironically hilarious. So, all right, we can move forward. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you want to read this one, uh, 37th? Or, oh, yeah. On page 37 to 38, White says, whether the work of salvation is perfectly accomplished by God for his own glory or is dependent upon man's cooperation and assistance is the watershed issue that separates biblical Christianity from everyone else. Yeah, so, oh boy. So strictly speaking, I don't think that any Christian believes that man's cooperation or assistance is needed in the actual act of salvation. We all agree that salvation is of the Lord, that God alone saves us. However, it's clear from the context that White intends for the phrase, 
work of salvation to be construed a lot more broadly and to also encompass what comes before salvation as well. Now, I do believe that man has to do something prior to being saved, namely believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, as the scripture says everywhere. Now, if White disagrees with that, then I submit that it's his position, which is radically unbiblical. If he doesn't disagree with this, then he should stop pretending that he said something that's controversial. Because, again, literally everyone agrees that the act of salvation itself is something that God alone does. But as Amir said in our uh, live chat right here, it says question begging, question begging everywhere. It's <laughs> continually assuming my premise and not having to defend it. I'm just making the statements, which is actually, if you watch a lot of white debates, that's actually a huge tactic of his is question begging. So what the, right here, that right, that particular quote bothered me as well, because for a man to choose God on his own free will is not... Oh, he needed, God needed his cooperation. It's, it's again, salvation is of the Lord. So it's, a, it's another misrepresentation of people who would have what he would call a synergistic view because, and White's view, anything that is, comes from the free will of man to choose God, he believes a synergism. Oh, we'll though, get to that later. Yes, yes, we will. You're right. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> so um, anyway, so his point here is actually rather contrived. Is what uh, so making it that God must determinately choose to save for His own glory is to beg the question, and it assumes that God giving man agency to choose him choose himself is somehow robbing God of His own glory. In reality, it could be argued that a free agent lovingly responding to God and His own creation and His own revelation to man of His own volition also brings glory to God. So again, it doesn't. It's a false equivocation of some sort, and it's question begging. So it bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to have a lot of that. So you're going to be very bothered, Will. I, I, dude, when I was reading this book, I was just, it was a trudge. Yeah. Because within the first 40 pages, I was annoyed beyond all measure. Yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, anyway. Moving on, page yes. 39. Yeah. The doctrines of grace. I hate that name for them. The doctrines of grace direct us away from ourselves and solely to God's grace and mercy. They destroy pride, instill humility, and exalt God. And that's why so many invest so much time in the vain attempt to undermine their truth. End quote. And the doctrines of grace are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, the famed tulip. Yeah. And there's not a whole lot of grace in there, but um, so but that's yeah, that's why I've never understood the name doctrines of grace. But anyway, so the irony of this whole passage should not be lost on the reader. I don't know when you listen to James White, does he seem to you to be a humble man? Because I can't say that I find him to be that way. And shut up, David. You work at Dillard's. What do you know? <laughs> I'm just saying it doesn't inspire confidence that these so-called doctrines of grace instill nearly as much humility as White seems to think that they do. And just leaving that issue aside, how has White concluded that all of the alternatives to Calvinism fail to instill humility? Uh, presumably because he's still operating on the assumption that non-Calvinists believe that they save themselves in some sense. But as we've already noted, that's just bunk. Everyone right. agrees that God alone performs the work of salvation. Uh, so this just comes off as like a superficial attempt at piety and uh, this last sentence, attributing bad motives to critics of Calvinism, 
I mean, that's just poisoning the well, and it's a textbook example of an ad hominem. Perhaps the non-Calvinists just honestly don't believe that Scripture teaches Calvinism. But also, White's not, yeah, oh, sorry, White's just not willing to consider that possibility. Right. But yeah, go ahead. No, no, and also this bothers me all the time. I hear all the time, you have a man-centered doctrine, because right here, it's like trying to push people away from man and unto God. If you're reading scripture and you don't realize that scripture is a story between man and God, if you focus only on man, you've got a problem. If you focus only on the God part of that equation, you got a problem. Mankind is, is valuable, created an image of God. He views them as a, he looked at his creation and said, it is very good. It is, they are his children, he loves them, which is why he sent his son to die for them. So there is this really, it bothers me when people try to re remove man from the equation entirely. If I am not, to, if we are if we are to remove man entirely from this equation, then we're essentially saying that mankind has zero value unless God chose them, which is problematic to say the least, in my view. Um, like I said, this is strictly from my perspective, but I honestly believe that that's one of the biggest problems with Calvinism is actually devalues man. <laughs> and and not in a way that's like, oh, well, you want to make man God. No, I want to value man the way scripture values man, the way God values man. And I think if we value man, we show that we also value God because he values man. So anyway, I digress. Soapbox, I'm getting off of it. Um, that's actually one of the many reasons why I don't affirm that God poured his wrath out on his son. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. We won't get into atonement theories. I'm sorry, David, I pulled you into that. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. <laughs> um, anyway, so I'd probably be called a heretic by White just for saying that, but whatever, it's fine. How dare you deny the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement? The 400-year-old doctrine created by, the Luth by Luther only? What? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, is there anything else you wanted to say to that point? No, we can move on to page 41. Okay. Very good. So when uh, he says that when pressed to believe consistently that God truly can do as he pleases without getting permission from anyone, including man, we discover that many who in fact confess such beliefs in practice deny it. Okay, so as per usual, White is quick to claim the people who deny uh, this in practice, and, but yet he's, you know, he's not, he doesn't cite any sources. I'm not aware of anyone, Calvinist or not, who thinks that God needs permission to do anything. I think that White probably means that non-Calvinists affirm that one must believe before God will save them. Okay, fair enough. But no non-Calvinist, to my knowledge, characterizes that as man giving God permission to save him. Rather, we understand it to be man meeting a divinely ordained condition for salvation. We believe that God could save people without them believing if he wanted to. But scripture is just clear that God desires uh, that people believe before he will save them. Hence, White is apparently confused about what we believe that God does do, or rather, I should say White is confusing what we believe that God does do with what God can do. And this mistake resurfaces throughout the book. Right, exactly. Also, New Testament theologist Nick Quint, is that what it was? He yep, corrected Quint. me. He's asking me to give him his uh, up to his seven shout out, so I'm giving him a shout out. Check out New Testament Theologist, which, by the way, he has an awesome playlist now up about his review of this book, and he goes chapter by chapter, okay? It is long, it is in-depth, and Nick is kind of the man. Uh, love that guy. Nick is so, awesome. 
yeah, he really is. He's a lot of fun too. Uh, he's one of those people that's like, oh, you're serious in your th in your studies, but you don't take yourself that seriously. Thank the thank the good Lord for that. Amen. So, <laughs> so all right. Now, if we want, we can move to uh, page 45. I do want to make sure we uh, address as many of these as possible. Uh, so he says, actually, you want to take a go ahead and take this one. Sure. Uh, White says, quote, even amongst those who embrace the Christian faith, there is a hesitance to confess God as creator, God as determiner of my shape and my destiny, end quote. Now, I know of no Christian who has any hesitation in affirming that God is the creator, so. I don't know where White's getting that from, and he doesn't cite the source. Surprise, surprise. Uh, you know, so, I mean, yeah, I, I would really appreciate some citations for these things that you say people believe, White. Uh, unsurprisingly, you know, he just doesn't supply one. However, the way that White phrases this sentence seems to suggest that he believes that affirming God as creator entails that God is also the determiner of one's destiny. Now, to be sure, there is a sense in which that is true, right? At the end of everyone's life, it's God who decides their destiny. But I suspect that White is referring to whether or not one believes in Christ or not. And I'm not merely hesitant to say that God determines whether or not I believe. I positively deny that God determines this. If one thinks that God determining me to believe is entailed by the doctrine of creation, the onus is on him to prove that. Until that burden of proof is fulfilled, White's claim here simply begs the question, and we can just dismiss it without consequence. Yeah, uh, claims made without any evidence can be dismissed without any evidence. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a, a running thing there. Now, on page 45 as well, and I know we're going back to page 43 here in a minute because we have quite a few different categories we're going to discuss. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, but also on page 45, he talks about things like hurricanes. Uh, uh, yeah, while many are content to allow God to control the big things, like hurricanes and the natural realm, it is, uh, it is the assertion that God's freedom extends to the actions of men, even to their choices, that meets immediate rejection. So he, he has issue with people going, no, we have free agency. He takes issue with that and says that, oh, well, you know, God doesn't, must not be in control. These people deny God uh, or d deny God's power or his, don't put him in his proper place in their lives, which is ironic on so many different levels. I'll talk about that here in a minute. Um, so, but the honest issue here is again, no, God is in control of, of things, many things, but it never, by the way, it never in the Bible does it say that he has to control each and every little detail. Never says like God is in complete, uh, complete and total control of everything. No, it just simply talks about him being sovereign and king, which I'm sure we'll get to here in a minute. But um, yeah, it 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 bothers me. So anyway, uh, let's move forward. <laughs> yeah, and we, we probably should have made clear from the start that the, the we're going to be jumping around pages a little bit because we classified each chapter by the mistakes that White makes. So uh, to, to, you know, for the sake of keeping things easy, so like that, all of what we just covered so far, that was just misrepresentation of other points of view. Now we're yeah moving into another section here where white By the way, basically that was your idea to do the section the sections off. I thought that was a really great idea. Um, I'm kind of letting you take lead on this part, so that's perfectly <laughs> fine. Uh, <laughs> it, just, it just kept things easier that way. I could like any mistake I came across, I could classify it under something. Uh, makes perfect sense when there's that many. 
<laughs> yeah, this, this section's a little bit shorter, but yet we're moving into white pretending that uncontroversial doctrines are Calvinist doctrines. Uh, yeah, page 43. You want to take it away? Yeah, let's do it. So it says, God could refashion and remake Israel as he pleased. He did not have to ask permission, seek advice, or in any way consult anyone or anything outside of himself. So, yeah, I can't personally think of anyone who would disagree with that statement. And yet White's cavalier attitude suggests that he thinks he's scored a point for Calvinism. Right. So, yeah, Nick Quint will give you another shout out here. He really made this point in his review of White's book. White has a really bad habit of making uncontroversial statements and then pretending that they're distinctively Calvinist statements. And that's just further proof that he doesn't understand Arminian theology or indeed any tradition outside of his own. Right. And then I uh, added a, another note on page 43 because this is another one of those like uncontroversial doctrines being claimed like they're Calvinistic only. So the biblical testimony could be expanded almost indefinitely, he says. God is king over all the earth as the creator. It is his to do with, uh, to do with as he chooses. And I go, yeah. And what if he chose to give us free agency? Like you're not making a point here. Like it's again, we all agree God, God is king and sovereign. What we're arguing about is how does is that exactly entailed? What yeah. exactly does that entail? So uh, we're not at, at arguing the what, we're at arguing the uh, how? Yeah, yeah. The debate has never been over whether or not God is sovereign. It's always been over how does God choose to exercise his sovereignty, whether by allowing people to be free moral agents uh, who can actually be the first cause of their own actions, or that God is, I know the Calvinists hate this analogy, but, you know, God is effectively pulling the strings, you know, that God is determining everything. <laughs> I mean, the debate is always over how does God express his sovereignty? Literally no one denies that God is sovereign. Actually, real quick, as far as determinism is concerned, David, I know you read a lot, uh, but do you play video games? Occasionally. Okay. Did you ever play through the game Bioshock? No. You should. Anyway, uh, it's like I'm very upset, actually, a little bit right now. More upset than <laughs> I am at the book. But anyhow. Um, That's bad. So, well, yes. Well, one of the premises of the book, and follow with me, oh, not the book of the game, is uh, you're a person who doesn't know who he is. You get stranded on a lighthouse, and the lighthouse leads to an underwater city. And the city is run by an atheist. He wants uh, no petty morality. He wants a scientist to do what he wants. And so the place just becomes just absolutely falling apart and degenerate. Okay? Now I'm going somewhere with this. There's a plot twist. So spoilers for anyone who wants to play Bioshock, but it's like 12 years old, so I don't care. Um, so what ends up happening is you play through this game, and you're playing through mission after mission after mission. You're talking to a guy on the radio. Well, come to find out, you're actually like a genetic test piece. And whenever someone says the command phrase, would you kindly, you have to do it. And throughout the entire game, would you kindly do that? Would you kindly do this? So you're just filing objectives, thinking that you are playing a game and that you're an active hero when really you're being mind controlled by this other guy. And the end of the game is essentially the whole, you've been controlled this entire time. And ha ha, joke's on you. Uh, because they were the creators of the game created a world right, that you interact with, they created objectives. So it's also kind of like, it's breaking the fourth wall a little bit, letting you know like, yeah, video games are kind of determinism. And whenever I'm reading this, I'm like, yeah, this is essentially, he's arguing that the freedom of the video game creator to create the video game the way he wants to. But also I have played Alien Isolation. I know that they also were able to create an AI that does whatever the heck it wants. 
So, anyhow, for my fellow nerds, have a good time with my video game analogy. Otherwise, we shall continue on being serious theologians. <laughs> Not sponsored by Bioshock, by the way. No, no, or Alien Isolation, sadly. <laughs> Although okay. I'm willing to take it. I'm willing to take it. Uh, if anyone wants to get me that sponsorship. All right. So then... Th this was, next category is fun. This one actually almost had me like, I don't know, flipping tables. I was incredibly annoyed. Uh, you're a philosophy geek. I'm a philosophy geek, but you're more so than I am. <laughs> so this part is bad. Mm -hmm. On page 38, he begins to reject the uh, philosophy. Go ahead. Take it away. All right. Yep. Quote, it is not philosophy that leads the reformed believer to his or her conclusions. It is biblical exegesis that does so. End quote. So this is ironic. Um, we're really going to see how important the role of philosophy is uh, for White's conclusions in chapter 2. Uh, but for the record, uh, I don't think it's a bad thing to allow philosophy to guide our conclusions. I, I think we should, and I think it's unavoidable. Uh, it's just, it's actually, yeah, it's just not possible not to do that, because whatever conclusion you reach regarding the role that philosophy should be playing, those conclusions will themselves be philosophical. Now, I'm only pointing this out because it shows how blind White is to his own presuppositions and how simplistic his outlook is. Notice how throughout this entire book up to this point, there hasn't been meaningful exegesis either. It's yeah, we, only we, been historical and philosophical argumentation. We could also talk about what does White mean by meaningful, because he just seems to, <laughs> he seems to mean by that, that uh, anything I don't like. Uh, but yeah, White just doesn't know what he doesn't know. And it's really worth pointing out that exegesis itself is predicated upon certain philosophical commitments. Bingo! A, a few of those include that there is a physical world, that belief, or the belief that meaning is something that's real, right? The belief that communication is possible, uh, the belief that communication is possible over time, the belief that we should seek the author's original intention, uh, the belief that context is a reliable guide to ascertaining meaning, there's just no way to do exegesis without philosophy. Uh, and again, it's not a bad thing, but White is oblivious to that fact. He really thinks it's as simple as, the Bible told me so, you know? Right, which you still need a philosophical presupposition to even take the Bible seriously. In fact, um, what I find uh, to be uh, another ironic thing is, it's kind of like when I talk to an atheist and I'm like, well, philosophically, like, I don't care philosophically, I care about scientifically. I'm like, science is a philosophy. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry, we're going to have to talk philosophically here. Also, real quick, do you mind if we uh, answer Gregory Cook's question here? He asks, good evening, Will and David. What do you guys think of free grace theology's position, which argues that Calvinism teaches salvation by works with the pea and tulip? Um, so, I mean, I'm not a proponent of free grace. Uh, it's not something I've studied like as much as I've studied Calvinism. But for those who aren't familiar with it, as I understand free grace theology, they basically uh, reject the need for repentance and salvation. They would just say that you uh, basically have propositional assent to the gospel, and that's all that's needed for salvation. Uh, I really don't think that that's, I don't get that when I read the New Testament. When I read the New Testament, there's got to be commitment, there's got to be loyalty, you've got to be following Christ. These are things that follow from faith, and so I think faith is really more than just propositional. Right, and everything, and Jesus repeatedly said, repent and believe. So I have a real issue with the free grace, uh, also with the P and tulip. 
That's why uh, David and I both affirm the apostate doctrine. We believe people can walk away from their faith. So I think that helps us get around some of the issues with the PN tulip. So, yeah. um, all right. Also, this was funny. I did want to say this. <laughs> Proposition one, white teaches we should reject philosophy. Proposition two, the reformers knew uh, and used philosophy. Conclusion, we should reject the reformers. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, some of you, see, this is why I like the audience. They're always a bunch of- Cold, pedals. hard logic. Cold, hard logic. All right, so uh, it's uh, a philosophical uh, argument to argue that philosophy does not matter. That's the point. So- <laughs> So it's self-defeating. Um, exactly. So, uh, also, he, there is an over-reliance in this book uh, upon only Calvinist uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Walls of text from people like Spurgeon and Calvin and the Westminster <laughs> Confession. Uh, actually, uh, a fun fact about the Westminster Confession, uh, we have a strong, I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, so I have Calvin College, and we're Reformed Central. So I went downtown once and this, did I tell you the story before about the Presbyterian I ran into? Okay. So I ran into a Presbyterian guy, he was passing out tracks and I, he was like, you know, trying to evangelize. And I took it and I was like, whatever, dude, I'm on my way to Big B. So, and I just took it when he handed it to me and I walked and I got about 10 feet away. I'm like, dude, churches usually don't have a lot of money. I should turn around and give this back. So I turn around, I hand him back the tracks. Like, hey man, look, I already know Christ. I, I don't need this. Go ahead and give it to somebody who needs it. And he goes, well, how do you know that you know Christ? I'm like, uh, and I was like, cause I, my faith and trust in him, like, sola fide, hey. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't even see what church it was. So suddenly he's like, well, do you uh, accept the fact that um, it is not your choice but God's? And I was like, wait, what? And I was like, what church are you with? And he's mentioned whatever Presbyterian. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I was like, oh, actually, I'm, I've always kind of more affirmed like a Molinist uh, middle knowledge. And he literally grabs his Bible and he flips through it like this. He goes, mm, I didn't find Molinism in there. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, did you find John Kelvin in there too? <laughs> I was like, we go back and forth on this for a minute. And then finally, like, I mean, they kept trying to like precept me, like uh, presuppositional apologetics me. Like, how do I know that's true? How do I know that's true? And I'm like, dude, I'm not an atheist. And I finally, we, we uh, long story short, he added me on Facebook for like a month and then he ended up unfriending me and thought it was hilarious. Um, anyway, so long story short, it didn't go well. That, right. That's how you know we only friended you to try to convert you. Exactly because apparently you have to convert people who don't have free will to convert. So, um, <laughs> over-reliance upon Calvinist thinkers. Uh, he says on page 36 to 37, few have had the ability to speak with the clarity and free and force of Charles Haddon Spur Spurgeon. Uh, and he follows with a lengthy quote. Uh, I think I speak for both David and myself when I say I don't care what Spurgeon says. Yep. <laughs> Really don't care. Really don't care. I really care about what scripture says. I get it. Spurgeon was a very famous preacher. He made an impact on people's lives. Uh, and that's also to say this, like, even though I find this book to be bad and, and not a good defense or representation of Calvinism, um, I will say this, like even white, I have, we had him on to talk about King James Omeism and I have a, liked a lot of white's work. But I have also found things like this, which is supposed to be kind of like his, uh, what's the word, his sandbox, I have found lacking, which is strange to me. Because um, I have read other Calvinists that are way stronger at defending their position. So anyway. Yeah. And one other point I'd make upon just how much he relies on like quotations from famous Calvinists. Um, 
I'm not going to be convinced because a famous preacher agreed with White. I'm really not. Right. And so the fact that White apparently expects the reader to be convinced by this, that's just proof that the book is really preaching to the choir. And that comes out in more than just these quotations. But I really think he's writing this to his own tribe, uh, as it were. This book's not written to convince you or me, um, and that's really just made evident by these quotations from people that only a Calvinist is going to care what they thought. Right, uh, exactly. And uh, I thought that too. I was reading this, I'm like, I feel like this book is like the inside, like one of those inside jokes, and I'm on the outside. And so I was like, I'm not feeling like it. I didn't really feel like it was going at, like trying to talk to me. I really felt like it was just like, let me just say the classic bumper sticker slogans that many popular Kelvinists say. Also, hello, Idol Killer, Warren McGrew. See you in the chat. Good seeing you. Um, so then uh, he, there's also some misreadings of scripture. Why don't you take that away a little bit? Sure. So yeah, page 45, quote, while many are content to allow God to control the big things. It is the assertion that God's freedom extends to the actions of man, even to their choices, that meets with immediate rejection. But the Bible is clear on the matter. Three scriptural witnesses will testify to this truth. So, first, like, White is unclear on what he means in this paragraph. Does he mean that God's freedom, i.e. determinism, applies to some of men's actions or to all of them? I don't reject that God can or even sometimes does control the actions of human beings in special circumstances. What I'm going to deny is that God always or even normally does this. So White must present biblical texts which show that God determines men's actions, not sometimes, but all of the time, if he wants to make the case for theistic determinism. Right. Um, also, Marlon uh, Wilson points out, hello, by the way. Uh, so the book was a response to criticism of the Calvinistic system, not really meant to convince anyone. Obviously. <laughs> I'm just glad, just, glad, just glad you're aware of that, Marlon. Yeah. Uh, also, I will say this, though. Even if you're doing a response, you should be trying to convince somebody. Yeah. Look, I, I just think it's bad to be like, no, I'm just going to say my talking points, but not try to convince you. Um, and Mar Marlon, the subtitle of the book is A Defense of the Reformation and a Rebuttal of Norman Geisler's Chosen But Free. The book is hailed by the people who are endorsing it as a modern antidote to Arminianism, as something that should be super convincing. So obviously the people that White was giving this to and who he let endorse his book didn't take this as a mere rebuttal to Norman Geisler's Chosen But Free. Yes, that was probably the primary instigation for it, but it is intended to function as a defense of the Reformation as well. Right, and I'm not sure how what part you're saying that deflates the criticism, but anyway, we got to keep trucking, so. Uh, yeah, because we're only four pages into the notes. This is a problem. Um, so, all right. Uh, then on page 45, there's misreading scripture, um, which uh, he says, many are content to allow God to control the, oh yeah, no, you just said that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say, White, White basically then proceeds to cite God's use of Assyria to punish Israel in Isaiah 10. He notes both that God uses them and that they're blameworthy. Similarly, White adduces Joseph's words in Genesis 50, 19 through 21, where he says that God intended to use his brother's evil actions to bring about good. And finally, White sees evidence for this in Acts 4, 27 through 30, where we read that God eternally planned and indeed predestined the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, 
you had some comments in there. Did you want to give those before oh. I? Oh, I got some things. So first off, um, Marlon, I'm definitely use, <laughs> I'm using your little comment here. Uh, we love so, you, Marlon. Yeah, we love you, but I'm going to roast you for a second out of love. Um, so <laughs> I watch your channel, though, so hey. Be nice. All right. So, although I'm not. All right. Okay. So when God completes his work in Jerusalem, he says on page 47, he will punish the arrogance of the Assyrians. He points out the foolishness of the Assyrian thinking that he is operating separately from God's sovereign decree. But hold up. This means that their arrogance was part of God's decree. So this is a trying to have your cake and eat it too. This is, I made you be arrogant but I'm going to blame you for being arrogant, even though I made you that way. Because just a second ago, he was he said on page 45, God's freedom extends also to the actions of men. So in other words, if he controls my actions and then he's mad at them for being arrogant, then as you said, Marlon, I guess you're right. He doesn't need to convince anybody because God just does what he wants with us and we're nothing but be puppets on strings. Because he's, it's right here. This is a weirdly self-defeating statement. You can't say that they were decreed to be arrogant and then also accuse them of wrong because of the arrogance that they were decreed to have. Yeah. Am I making sense here? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's the how dare you do what I determined you to do. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make sense to get outraged over it. Right. Um, it's, like, it's like me telling my, my daughter, all right, honey, go pick that up. Why did you pick that up? How dare you pick that up? Like it doesn't. Or even worse, if you tell her to pick it up and then restrain her from doing it, and then you get mad at her for not picking it up, and then I throw her in hell. So, yeah. um, anyway, uh, I think basically the conclusion here, though, with all of the texts that White has cited, the the three texts, right? Presumably he would use strong ones, right? This is his case for determinism. Those three texts. Uh, the conclusion that God decrees all things does not follow from those texts. Showing that God determines some things, which is not controversial, does not imply that God determines all things which come to pass. White is basically guilty of the fallacy of composition here. That is, he concludes that because some events have been predetermined by God, that therefore all things have been predetermined by God, and that just does not follow logically. Correct. And also, this would just mean that, uh, yeah, because if God's free, He's able to interact with the world however he chooses to, but also if he created us free, he's able to interact with our freedom. Like how free creatures interact with one another. Right. So. And that, this isn't even getting into like ways that like you can read those passages as a Molinist to like, but let's just grant that this is talking about causal determinism. You just don't get that God determines all things from pointing out a few examples where God determines something. It right. Doesn't exactly. Follow. And I, yeah, and as a Molinist, I would just say, yeah, God, or as someone who affirms like middle knowledge, yeah, God knows. So, yeah, and of course, what was, and I also don't get why it's wrong for God to respond to the free choices of man. That doesn't make sense to me either. Like, so what if you knew that, like, that David uh, would respond in such a way and that God chose to respond? Is that part of God's freedom too? Like, can he have that freedom of choice? Anyway, it tries me out. Ah, Jordan Ferrier, welcome to the chat. You just don't understand Calvinism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jordan might have to join us uh, on a few of these critiques because he's got notes for days on this book too, by the way. Fun fact for you. The more the merrier. All right, let's party. All right, so. Um, that was chapter one. Right. Um, wait, 
what uh, you y'all sound like you're affirming dynamic omniscience. For a minute there, I, I was having a hard time understanding Warren would do. I was like affirming do do what? Oh, do dynamic omniscience. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Warren, you shameless plug. All right, so now moving on, what is on page 58 there for me, David? All right, yeah, we're moving into chapter two. And again, we're going back to the category of white misrepresenting other points of view. Sorry, he does it a lot. Uh, yeah, page 58, quote, we are still left with the classical conundrum of how God can be sovereign over all things on the one hand and man completely free on the other, end quote. This conundrum is rather easily resolved by simply defining the word sovereign correctly. According to Merriam-Webster, impartial and standard dictionary, the word is defined as one possessing supreme political power or one that exercises supreme authority. The word does not, nor has it ever, meant determinism. Think about it. A sovereign is a king or some other type of monarch. Did kings determine every aspect of their kingdom right down to what the serfs and peasants ate or wore as clothing uh, or what they did for fun? Obviously not. So white is just assuming an incorrect definition of sovereignty. Once that has been eliminated, this so-called conundrum dissolves. Right. Uh, I mean, honestly, did King Robert ever determine every little thing that happened in his kingdom? I don't think so. Nope. So. Nope. Uh, also, now, to be fair to White in this part, he actually makes a good point against Geisler because uh, Geisler says in Chosen But Free, by the way, we had a question in the chat somewhere of whether it's a good book on soteriology. Not really. Okay. Nope. Um, Chosen But Free is not that great either. So, but it says, right, Geisler said, he's like, well, it's no, you just got to understand it properly. It's God knowingly determining and determinately knowing. And that's really to speak nonsense as a contradictory statement. Um, and white does a good job at kind of like punching that one in the teeth, which it rightfully was, uh, cause you can't knowingly determine and then determinately know it doesn't really make much sense there. Cause then you, that doesn't allow free will cause you're determinately knowing. So, yeah. Anyway. We're definitely not defending Geisler. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, uh, and as uh, Jordan said, in Calvinism, God foreordained what you will freely choose. But if again, if you're foreordaining something, you're not freely free. You're just not, right? So, because it was still chosen for you. Um, and I know Cal Jordan knows this, but I'm just making commentary as we go. So, I uh, want to go ahead and take uh, the next point there from yep, page yep. 63. Uh, or I thought we are on page 59. Oh, yeah, 59 and 63. All right, yeah, he makes the same argument. I, I see where you're at. All right, oh, yeah, sorry. so, no, no, you're good. Quote, Geisler's position is very much the same as the Arminian, who says that God merely looks into the future and elects on the basis of what he sees, end quote. Now, I'm an Arminian, okay? So when somebody says Arminian, or especially when a Calvinist says Arminians believe, my, you know, my, my can I say my BS antenna goes up uh, just because I got a, I got a, uh, you know, I hear a lot of misrepresentation. <laughs> when, when, whenever I hear a non-Arminian say Arminians believe, I'm always like, oh, I'm not going to like what I hear. And I didn't. Uh, you know, citation needed, White. Uh, needless to say, White does not cite any Arminians who believe that God looks into the future and elects on the basis of what he sees. Uh, White seems completely unaware that Arminians have two major theories of election. Most contemporary Armenians hold to corporate election, 
uh, and that doesn't, you know, even involve foreknowledge. But even those who take the historic Armenian view of election, that it's based on foreknowledge, believe that God eternally knows who will believe. They do not believe that God looks into the future and discovers who will believe. White is just demonstrating his complete ignorance of both contemporary and historic Arminian theology. Correct. Exactly. Uh, so then uh, we'll go ahead and move to page 61. Uh, and it says, open theism is specifically designed to undercut and deny the sovereignty of God. And that and the idea that he is accomplishing a specific freely chosen purpose in this world. This is a gross misrepresentation of open theism. Open theism simply says that the future is open, it's not set. God is in time, not outside of time. Therefore, time flows and God's in it. So he can, through his wisdom and knowledge, he can make predictions of the future, but it is not set, it is an open. It is not because they're trying to undercut God's sovereignty. It is literally, honestly, if you read, I will say this, and this is gonna get me in trouble. There's, I believe, I sincerely believe that there's more textual evidence, if, especially in the Tanakh of open theism than there is of Calvinism. Oh, a lot more. So just throwing that out there, and it's not the boogeyman everyone makes it out to be, a silly Nick's statement there. Um, it's not the boogeyman that everyone makes it out to be. Open theists are just as strong brothers and sisters in Christ as anyone else. Yeah, yes. and, and you know, you and I, we are not open theists, uh, no. but we're just pointing out that White is misrepresenting, or he's, yeah, he's misrepresenting open theism. Uh, we've already seen that White is operating under the false assumption that sovereignty means determinism. That's just flatly incorrect. Uh, and while open theism certainly does deny determinism, so do virtually all alternatives to Calvinism. So exactly. this leaves me wondering, why does White think that open theism is specifically designed to undercut determinism any more than any other alternative to Calvinism? Just that last portion of, his, of the quotation there is just so plainly false. Exactly. No open theist denies that God's accomplishing a specific plan. They would just deny that God accomplishes this via determinism, as would all other non-Calvinists. So White just doesn't know who he's disagreeing with. Which is actually, uh, which is why, by the way, we say all the time on the church split to escape your echo chamber, because if you're in your echo chamber, you will end up misrepresenting people all the time, because you actually just don't know usually, because uh, you only talk to people who agree with you, uh, and then you block them from commenting on Facebook. <laughs> I'm only saying that because I literally cannot comment on White's page on Facebook. I don't know where. I, I, I literally, he disagreed with me on, Mullen, uh, we were talking about the WLC debate with him. And I just mentioned, I was like, well, I just don't think the grounding objection really holds. And then he was like, well, if this is the problem. And if you don't understand this problem, frankly, you don't understand the, the controversy. Basically, if I don't agree with him, I don't understand the controversy. And mm -hmm. then I just no longer was able to respond. And you, so, ever, you, you ever notice how it's always you who doesn't understand it, and it could never yeah. be him who doesn't understand it? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. So I am. I, it bothers me because, again, like as someone who's actually re has respected a lot of White's work, White's work has had a direct impact in my life to get me out of the IFB. Uh, it's kind of frustrating because I'm like, dude, you could you could be better, better than this. Come on. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I know the feeling. <laughs> All right. So then, false dichotomies <laughs> abound in this book. False dichotomies everywhere. Um, so white quote, uh, white quotes, John, uh, Feinberg with approval, uh, on page 57, he says, does God foreknow because he foreordains or does he foreordain because he foreknows? 
Is it all right if we actually go back to one on page 64 that I think you skipped? I, I would oh, normally be yo, okay. Do your, do your thing. No, no, you're probably right. Oh, I did. I skipped it. You're good. Now, I'd normally be fine with that, but this is actually a really important one that I just wanted to hit. Yeah, uh, 64, White, on page 64, White says that, uh, quote, God wills to save man, but unless man wills to save himself, he will not be saved. This is thoroughgoing Arminianism, end quote. And that's supposed to be a description of Geisler's view, and so by extension, um, Arminianism. Uh, once again, White cannot cite any Arminians who believe this. We see that White has no idea what Arminian theology actually says. Literally no Arminian believes that man saves himself. We affirm that God alone performs the work of salvation, uh, but we do not believe that this work is performed unconditionally. Man must believe in order to be saved. But the, the, yeah, there's just two quite distinct actions that are taking place. Man believes, God saves. Each of these actions are fully their own, though Arminians do hold that man, you know, has to be divinely enabled to believe. But under no circumstances do Arminians believe that man must be willing to save himself. It's just a flagrant misrepresentation, and there's no excuse for it. Only three pages later, White says, you often say more about your own position when you criticize someone else's, on page 67. White would do well to take his own medicine there. So yeah, sorry. I, yeah, we can go on to the false dichotomies. That just was a part I really wanted to hit because it's no, so absolutely. Important. Yeah, it, absolutely. I am not even upset. So we're right here is the false dichotomy of God foreknows because He foreordains, or does He foreordain because He foreknows? Go yeah. and take it away. Oh, it, it, it is such a false dichotomy on the part of White and Feinberg. It doesn't have to be entirely one or the other. God can foreknow some things because he has foreordained them, and he can foreordain some things because he knows what people will do. It doesn't have to be this either-or, black and white, you know. It can be both in different instances. Uh, so this statement, I think it just betrays the very black and white way, you know, pun intended, <laughs> in which white views this issue. He thinks it's either all got to be one way or all the other, and that causes him to ignore the significant range of possibilities between those extremes and the various nuances on how people kind of interact with that and i will say this uh one of the things that bothers me the most about calvinism is that historically it's us untenable it is a new theology that develops later on randomly in the reformation in the church history and of course people will take their little select quotes from different church fathers but it's not there the closest one you probably have is what augustine yeah and he believed you could lose your salvation so exactly so anyway um, so on page 60, uh, he says, do men do what they do because God has decreed all things, including the actions of men, or do men act aut autonomously and God simply has perfect knowledge of the results? Yeah. Now white is a little unclear here as to what he means. If by perfect knowledge of the results, white means perfect foreknowledge, then I can agree with this latter option. However, if white means knowledge of the results because of the results, then he's creating another false dichotomy, according to which God either has to determine the future or he can't know it. But obviously, Arminians and Molinists, uh, and you know, most provisionists as well, believe that there is another option, namely that God knows the future without causally determining it. So, I mean, it's just it's false dichotomy on top of false dichotomy. Right. And then uh, God, and then he says on page 69, God is not presented in CBF, uh, chosen but free, as the free and sovereign elector, but the one who responds to the free choices of men. 
why do, I never got like Calvinists have like such a big problem if God responds. Like, what's wrong with God being responsive? I thought he was free. <laughs> right, he, but, but he's not free to be responsive if he wants. I mean, it, it's just it's another false dichotomy. What if God freely and sovereignly wanted to elect to salvation those who believe? I mean, Scripture literally says this: First Corinthians one twenty one. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. White just doesn't consider that possibility. For White, either election is unconditional or it's not sovereign. But he just he gives us no reason to think that it can't be both conditional and sovereign, which just so happens to be what virtually every non-Calvinist believes. Correct. It's ironic. It's, it's so ironic that just two sentences later, White chides Geisler for straw man and Calvinism. Again, White, take your own medicine. Right. No, that actually bothered me when he said that in the book. It's like, oh, you know, straw man's Calvinism. Like, as if you haven't done that the last 50-some-odd pages? Like, I, just, <laughs> I mean, what's true for me? Is it true for me but not for thee? Honestly, like, I have found also that I have gained the respect. So there is actually a guy in here who is uh, in the live chat who's actually very IFB. I won't say where he goes to because I don't want to get him in involved. He's very IFB. He goes to an IFB church if I was an IFB pastor. But because of me trying to cons be consistent in everything, he goes, I respect you. I disagree with you on a lot of things, but I really respect you. And I'm like, that is the way you gain respect from your, those who disagree with you, is that you at least try to rep represent them properly and you stay principled. Uh, and that's why I think uh, white is so highly regarded in the Calvinist community, but outside of the Calvinist community, a lot of people are like, Ugh. yeah, they boo, uh, because it, he it does this. Um, and I will say this, when I talked to him, when I, we had him on the program, extremely gracious, and he's a lot of fun. Like, he's one of those people, I'm like, you are, he was way more personable than I expected him to be. And I'm like, dude, you're a good guy. Like, I like you. It's just so sad to me that this is one of your shticks. Because um, I really wish it wasn't, because then it would allow me to go, hey, here's a great Calvinist thinker. Let me point you to this guy, and he's going to do a proper uh, response uh, from his perspective. Anyway. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, of course, uh, did you want to talk? We are, you have it in here again, the over-reliance on Calvinist thinkers. Did you want to talk about that at all or not? Yeah, yeah, let's just briefly okay. hit it. You know, he quotes the 1689 Baptist Confession on page 68, R.C. Sproul, page 69 through 70, Charles Hodge, page 71. Uh, and that, that's a really long quote there. So uh, let me just reiterate again. I don't really care how many people agree with what he's saying. I'm really a lot more interested in what the scripture has to say. And perhaps the reason why White feels the need to quote these sources in support of his views is because he can't quote scripture to support them. I just, I, I don't regard these sources as authoritative. And I mean, as a good reformer who believes in sola scriptura, neither should White. Well, actually, and the other thing is, it's like the, 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 um, the Baptist Confession doesn't really say much. It kind of makes like almost a logically contradictory statement, like a very vague statement. And then they're like, yep, see there, it's, that's how it works, you know? And, and it always bothers me because that, those the Presbyterians who ran to downtown here, they quoted it. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't say anything regarding this. And also it's a confession from like, you know, not that long ago. <laughs> and I don't really care. Uh, I, I care about scripture. I, I, I could read you a Mormon confession. Would that help? 
Like, come on, like, get out of here. <laughs> Tried to convince you of Mormonism through quoting the Book of Mormon. Yeah, that's really going to work. Exactly. So anyway, um, then on page 68, there's another one of those areas that uh, I also had underlined. God does, uh, he says, God does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And he does so solely on the basis of his own desire and decree, never on the basis of anything outside of himself. And I only have one question. What's your evidence for that? Yeah, it's funny because he quotes Daniel 4.33, like in the middle there, like right after he says that uh, God does according to his will and the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. You know, that's where the quotes are and that's where the reference is. But then he adds the whole, you know, the, the rest of what he says there. Now, Everyone agrees that God acts in accordance with his will. The debate regards whether or not it's God's will that people be free in the libertarian sense. And White states, you know, he puts this addendum on the verse there that, uh, well, I should say White, you know, states that God, well, God's acts do not take the choices of man into account. But it's interesting that that addendum onto the quotation there, it appears after the quotation marks, signifying that this is White's opinion not something stated in the text of Daniel 4. In other words, the text itself doesn't tell us how God desires to act, whether conditionally or unconditionally. And so therefore, what is, you know, using this to support his argument, but it can't actually decide one way or the other. White tacitly acknowledges that, since he feels compelled to basically tack his own opinion onto the end of the verse that, oh, well, this is by God's own desire and decree, and never on the basis of anything outside of himself. I'm like, you're just giving it away that the verse doesn't say that, man. Well, one of the things, um, also, uh, Stephen Moulter asked if we had, uh, have you already exegeted Romans 9 for the Calvinists listening? No, we're responding to the book. Um, actually, Jordan Ferrier, who is right here in the chat, uh, is going to be on with me, probably talk about Romans 9 here soon. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, but uh, on, a, on a different episode, obviously, that's going to be a long one. Um, but Jordan says, everyone does not agree that God even acts according to his will. Um, so... I don't know what you want to say about that, David. Uh, I'm just I'm wondering who he has in mind, but um, but Jordan does say guys are claimed to be a moderate Calvinist, so the quotes from multiple Calvinists uh, are probably relevant. So, um, but either way, uh, it just goes to show that again, it still isn't scripture, so it's not convincing me one way or the other. That's our point, right? Right. So, all right. Uh, then the, uh, so there's a complete misreading of scripture. The other thing is on page 69, this is what I was talking about. He says, R.C. Sproul has rightly pointed out that the Reformed view is simply the Augustinian view and that this is, this view is often badly misrepresented. And again, the irony is that he misrepresents others. But, uh, this does go to show that they even admit that their view is Augustinian. And I have said that many times and many people get mad at me, but it's true. <laughs> the truth hurts. Yes. Anyway, but, uh, also on page 69, a thing that bothers me, he goes, with a fundamental denial of the assertion that God's foreknowledge and predetermination are one. He literally believes that God's foreknowledge and his determination are one. As how, Why? Why do they have to be one? Why can't God foreknow something without predetermining it? Yeah. What's why the does he have to predetermine? That doesn't make much sense. Um so oh, Aquinas, Chesterton, and Lewis, he says, uh, are people who agree with that God does not always act according to his will. Uh, he mentioned that today on our, um, on our podcast, like the idea of God does not will that somebody takes from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
but they did. So it, but, oh, well, the, but allowing for that. Sort I of think thing. that that's getting into like the difference between God having a, um, an antecedent and a consequent will. And so God always does act in accordance with, um, with at least his consequent will. But um, yes, the antecedent will not always in accordance with that. So yeah, that's one way to put it, I guess. Um, <laughs> Sorry. That's yeah. I was just going to say, I think God, you know, God's, I, I think there's also this issue with equating a will with a determination. I yeah. can desire something. It doesn't mean that I'm going to make it happen. You know? So anyway, I'm not going to, we don't have time to chase all the rabbit trails. So, um, Anyway, so then uh, there's a lot of misreadings of scripture uh, in in area like 68. Now, there's also a problem at the very beginning here as well of a lot of proof texting. It's just a wall of various verses that seem to agree with his point. Yeah, that there's no exegesis whatsoever. No Um, meaningful exegesis. Oh, meaningful. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, So did you want to address the misreading scripture part on page 68? Uh, I hit that one already, but you had oh, one on did? page seven. You had one on page seventy that you wanted to get. Uh, I honestly, actually, must have done. Oh, right here, persuasion versus coercion. Uh, such middle ground exists in the Reformed theology because this persuasion versus coercion, gently wooing the free creature or forcing the free creature against his will. No middle ground is offered, though. Of course, he's talking about. Geisler doesn't offer any middle ground. Such a middle ground exists in Reformed theology. No, it doesn't. It's either because you say in Reformed theology that we ha- are incapable of seeing or responding to God unless he does it for us. So it has to be by coercion. By definition, it has to be by coercion. So it is truly, it, it truly bothers me. That was one of the things I wanted to make sure we did mention because that's problematic to me. Yeah. So continue forward, my friend. All right. Moving on to chapter three. Um, yeah. He kind of ignores the real issue here. So White, in Chapter 3, turns to deal with uh, the charge that his determinism does away with man's will and turns people into robots, right? That's in pages 77 and 78. Uh, Unfortunately, White simply quotes the London Baptist Confession, which affirms that men do have liberty and do not act by necessity. Now, first of all, I don't recognize this confession as being authoritative, so I find myself wondering why is White treating it as such? More fundamentally, White hasn't shown how his view avoids the charge of turning people into robots. He affirms that we are determined by God, but now he apparently agrees with this confession that our actions are not made by necessity. But this doesn't do anything to avert the concern. Instead, it just makes White's position look contradictory. Like, he did this in his uh, debate with William Lane Craig. He like he's like, oh look, the confession it says that you're free, but you're also like, not. Um, and I'm just like quoting the confession or affirming saying no. I hold two contradictory beliefs doesn't mean that there's not a contradiction. You know, just a saying I hold two contradictory beliefs and they don't contradict that doesn't get you out of it. You've got to actually do more work to show me how you're avoiding a contradiction. That, yeah, that's it's it's more than problematic. Um, so now, when it comes to this area, now also, are we in chap? I just want to double check we're in the same spot. Chapter three. We're in chapter three. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Because one of the other things here is that he says the fallen sons of daughters on page seventy six. The fallen sons of, and daughters of Adam are most adept at finding ways to promote creaturely freedom at the cost of God's freedom. So. This. 
So this is the problem when you get to the inabilities of man section. It's a math. It's a mess. So why is it that when we affirm our creaturely freedom, that suddenly we deny God's freedom? It doesn't make sense. I've, we've mentioned that before here, but it again that doesn't it doesn't follow. Um, and then he even says right here that truly recognizing one's spiritual state is a gift of grace. So in order for me to know this, and of course by gift of grace, he's not meaning like provenient grace, like grace right. that's given to all mankind. He means grace that is irresistible from God. So again, why is it that you're even chiding people for misrepresenting views or anything if for them to even recognize their spiritual state is something that has to be an act of grace from God? If it has to be for a act of grace of God, you should be happy that they're misrepresenting views because it means that they're falling in with the decree of the Lord. Maybe that's how he gets out of mis, uh, you know, him misrepresenting Arminianism a whole bunch. He can just say, God made me do it. <laughs> Instead of the devil made me do it, um, <laughs> it's God made me do it. In fact, actually, another thing Jordan said today on the podcast, I thought it was great. It was, uh, if God commands all things, including evil, then that means doing evil is good. Because if all things that God commands is good, then you can't escape the logic there. But this also, uh, I want to get on my little total depravity thing, because I, I have a hard time saying total depravity, mainly because of all the stuff that comes with it. There is a lot of uh, rhetorical weight uh, when you say total depravity. So that's why I just say I don't affirm it, um, and then I define my my view. I believe mankind has a fallen moral rectitude, but we're not totally depraved. I know you would say uh, you believe in total depravity, but you, redef you you define it differently than the Calvinists, correct? Yeah, we have been, we we talked about this, and we basically what we believe is pretty much the same thing. I'm happy to subsume it under total depravity, but yeah, um, I mean you don't like the label. I don't like the label because I like to say I don't affirm that and watch everyone shriek in horror at, at my heresy. And then I like to re define my terms to go, oh, that seems reasonable. I'm like, yeah, it is reasonable. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say as an Arminian, I agree with the doctrine of total depravity as long as all that is meant by it is that people are unable to believe the gospel apart from a special act of divine grace. And that's all I take the term to entail. Um, but white in Calvinists will tend to pack a lot more into that than I'm going to go along with. Uh, but, you know, anyway, my arguments for that doctrine look completely different than whites do. Um, so even though I technically am happy to say I agree with total depravity, I'm just, you know, not, not because of the reasons that whites cite. So I'm still happy to, like, go and critique his arguments for it. Right, exactly. So there, and then also, uh, so he says right here on page 78 and uh, point number three, he says, uh, uh, as a consequence of his fall into a state of sin, man has lost all ability to will the performance of any of those works, spiritually good, that accompany salvation. As a natural, unspiritual man, he is dead in, he is dead in sin and altogether opposed to that which is good. Hence, he is not able by any strength of his own to turn himself to God or even prepare himself to turn to God. There is not a singular supporting verse in scripture with that conclusion, not a single one. But let, let's look at the ones that he tries to cite in support of it. Let's go. All right. He begins with Genesis 6-5 on page 79. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Now, White takes this verse very literally, as he stresses that the verse says that absolutely every thought and intention was wicked. Now, 
even if we read this text with White's hyperliteralism, this statement is delimited to the world before the flood. So White cannot really conclude from this that therefore all men at all times since the fall have only had evil thoughts and intentions continually. More significantly, this verse is obviously hyperbolic. We know this because just three verses later we read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, Genesis 6, 8 through 9. If we took White's hyperliteral approach to this text, then there's immediately a blatant contradiction because the text both says that every thought and intention of man was only evil continually and also that Noah was righteous and blameless. Well, which is it? So, I mean, there's a problem with how he's reading the text, but even if he was right, it just doesn't get you total depravity. Correct. Um, so then the other thing, so there's a lot of verses in here that bother me with that. But even then, when it says that um, the wickedness of every thought, like you said, it's hyperbolic in that sense, and it does not necessarily affirm total depravity. It just means even then that there was a lot of evil on the earth. But if God wiped it, and I, uh, we, made the, we made this point in our Genesis series, if God truly did wipe out all that evil thought of the earth, then why does it return in total depravity later on? Uh, why, nothing changes in man's heart, really. He just wipes them out. Why? Because they're totally depraved. They're still totally depraved. Every thought yeah. was evil then. Every thought is evil now. So what's the point of the flood? It defeats the purpose. Yeah. So the other thing is Genesis 8.21. Uh, this is one of my favorite ones, uh, actually, against to, uh, the fact that we are born evil, wicked rebels against God as little babies. Uh, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil when from his youth. It gives a point of reference. It's not stating the fact that they're born evil and we're totally depraved. It's simply given a point of reference. By the days of our youth, our hearts are turned toward evil. Youth can mean a lot of things in Hebrew. Anyone from like three years old on up, it's the same word also used for prostitutes. So anyway. Yeah. And he gives a whole lot of verses, you know, on page Oh, yeah. And each one has its own problems. I have, like, all sorts of notes in here. I'm like, no! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I don't know if we want to go through each and every one of them because right. he doesn't, like, go on about it. But, yeah. Wait, he go... Wait you mean he doesn't exegete them meaningfully? <laughs> I don't I didn't see any meaningful exegesis in this book. Uh -huh. um, but, yeah, I mean, all of the verses he cites on pages basically 79 through 83 you know, they affirm that man is indeed radically sinful, dead in sins, and this is just something that, like, every Armenian agrees with. None of them say that man is unable to believe the gospel uh, apart from God's grace, so these passages don't really help White's case. Once again, I agree with White that people aren't able to believe the gospel without being enabled by God, but I'm just not going to use those verses to make my case because they don't get you there. Well, also, when you mean that enabled by God, you mean that God giving prevenient grace to all mankind to equally right. respond. Every person can respond. Oh, so yeah. That's, that would be an act of grace because all that which is good flows from God and therefore being able to respond is good. Yeah. So it makes sense. So uh, and then also there is, um, by the way, you have walls of text in here. So I'm going to let you kind of uh, guide this part because I was like, <laughs> there's a lot going on there. So I'll let you kind of do your thing. Um, but one of the parts I wanted to mention here on page 83 is that he does the classic Calvinist uh, false equivalency of dead in sin equals physical death. This 
it, it, it amazes me how many times they take something super hyperbolically, like mankind choosing something or mankind responding, and then they get all like theologically systematic to be able to avoid some of the the pressure from the text. But then suddenly, when it comes to the you know you're dead in sin, suddenly becomes hyper literal. Yeah. Uh, and so. And again, death here just means alienation. Physical, when you're going, well, could a corpse raise himself? Could Lazarus raise himself from the dead? No, Jesus had to do it. Well, like that, you were dead and God had to raise you from the dead. Okay, but none of that, you're equating physical death with spiritual death. Spiritual death means alienation. Just like if I said, David, because you work at Dillard's, you're dead to me, uh, that, would, that would be foolish. Uh, yeah, on multiple levels. Yes, but also it would just mean are you truly dead? No, you're dead to me. You're alienated, right? Right. Right. So you, so stop working at Dillard's. How dare you pay your bills? <laughs> Don't pay your bills or work hard. Yes. Just, How dare I work an honest job? <laughs> anyway, uh, where else do you want to go talk about it here? Yeah, I, I guess I'll try to hit as briefly as possible the other verses that White tries to use to make his case. Uh, he cites Romans 8, 6 through 8. We read that, you know, the mind which is set on the flesh can't please God. <clears throat> White argues from that verse that the lost man cannot please God uh, if repentance and faith or are repentance and faith pleasing to God. Yes, therefore, regeneration must take place first. That's page 84. And he makes the same argument again on page 115 through 116. Now, notice that uh, notice that White changed what was said in this verse. The verse does not say that the lost cannot please God like White does. It actually says that those who are in the flesh or have set their mind on the flesh cannot please God. So the question we want to answer is this. What does it mean to be in the flesh or to have your mind set on the flesh in the context of this passage? Is that a synonym for being lost? I don't think so. I believe that this is a reference to a lifestyle of indulging in worldly sinful behaviors. Look at how Paul characterizes being in the flesh throughout the chapter. Uh, in verse eight or chapter eight, verse four, the requirement of the law, or yeah, the the the, the, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. For those who are uh, in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And then, so brethren and brother brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Uh, and those are that verses eight. Uh, yeah, chapter 8, verses 4, 5, and uh, 12. So Paul speaks of walking in the flesh, setting your mind on the things of, flat, of the flesh, and living in the flesh. This speaks of a lifestyle, one which is unpleasing to God. Paul's point is fairly simple. Living in a way that is displeasing to God is incompatible with pleasing God. It's noteworthy that Paul is not making White's point. He does not say that saving faith... Um, yeah, basically saving faith is just not in Paul's purview. He doesn't say that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Therefore, those who are in the flesh cannot believe, right? White is trying to adduce that from what Paul says. So it should also be pointed out that Paul believes that it is possible to both believe the gospel and walk according to the flesh at the same time. He makes this painfully clear in verses 12 through 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. Paul is clearly addressing believers since he calls them brothers and sisters, and he tells these believers that if they live in accordance with the flesh, they will die. And I just lost my spot in my notes, so 
one sec to forgive me a sec to find that. No, um, you're good. Because one of the other things I just want to point out in uh, Romans chapter 8, 6 through 8, it says, who according to the flesh set their minds. So this was an act of choice on their part. It yes. makes it very clear. They set their minds. God didn't set their minds. They set their minds. And then at the end, he says, to do so, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's simple. It's saying that those who are in the flesh who choose to do so, not by a decree, not by some, not by some puppet strings, not by some hidden will of God, uh, not by that, just simply by their own choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, verses 12 to 13, right? I mean, it, it is just very clear that Paul is addressing believers and telling them that if they live in the flesh, they'll die. So this entails that Paul believes that one could be a believer and walk after the flesh. Therefore, Paul must have believed that faith alone was not sufficient to make one pleasing to God. That undermines White's entire point. And then finally, White makes his case out of his favorite verse in the Bible, I'm pretty sure, John 6, 44, where Jesus says that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. And White argues against this being a universal drawing because Jesus says that those who are drawn are going to be raised up. Uh, that's on page 85 through 86. Now, White promises he's going to deal with that verse in more detail later. So we'll save a detailed analysis of John 6 for later on. Here I'm just going to briefly offer my own thoughts as to what Jesus means in John 6.44. In short, I believe that this statement is historically delimited to the time of Jesus' ministry on earth. The Gospel of John recognizes a class of people who cannot believe on Christ and a class of people who certainly will. I see evidence throughout the Old Testament and the Gospel of John, which supports that those who cannot believe on Christ have ignored the previous revelations from God in Moses and the prophets, whereas those who have received God's revelation will most definitely believe on Christ, right? Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would, you would have believed me. So the explanation for who believes and who does not is conditional upon the actions of the individual. The drawing in verse 44 parallels the giving in verse 37. The giving in verse 37 is a present tense verb. So the giving and drawing in John 6, 37 and 6, 44 refer to actions that God is presently doing at the time Jesus is speaking. Jesus says that no man can presently come to him unless the Father draws him. He does not say that no man can ever come to him without being drawn in the way that John 6, 44 describes. Again, as an Arminian, I do believe that God has to enable people to believe through prevenient grace. But that is not what John 6.44 is describing. This verse refers to the Father's present action relative to the time that Jesus said it of drawing the faithful children of Israel to their Messiah. And again, John 12.32 looks forward to that future drawing of all people when Jesus says that uh, when he's raised up, he'll draw all men to himself. Actually, to point to jump on that a little bit more too, because White says in verse uh, in a, on page eighty-five that there is these are not words to be glossed over. Non-reformed Protestants simply cannot explain Jesus's meaning. Oh, I just did it. But you just did. Oh, <laughs> thug life! Somebody put glasses on and Photoshop that in. All right. So, uh, and I literally wrote in my marginal notes, I was like, false. We can uh, actually answer meaningfully. And also because after his death, he draws all men unto himself. Yep. So, again, like you said, there's a temporary judicial hardening. And Dr. Flowers actually talked about that quite a bit when he was on our program as well. Um, 
so, you know, you can't you can't trust anything Uncle Layton says. You just need story time with Uncle Layton. He doesn't do meaningful exegesis. Yeah, even though like literally his entire book is an exegesis of Romans chapter nine. <laughs> but, but, but 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 choice meets. <laughs> but choice meets though. Oh goodness! All right. So now, uh, what what is the next part you wanted to discuss? I kind of let you take over at this point. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to take over the show. No, uh, no, I'm, letting, no, no I'm saying I'm letting you. I, I, I want you to, because well, I'm well, going to now comment as we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll move on to the last chapter here that we're going to um, address today. So this is chapter four. Again, a whole lot of misrepresentation of other points of view. Page 91. Synergism versus monergism. Grace dependent upon man's volition versus the powerful, all-sufficient grace preached by the Reformation. End quote. So let's correct this just from the start. White begins by defining the terms incorrectly. It's really unfortunate, in my opinion, that many Arminians embrace the synergism label, since, as I'm going to argue, it's really inaccurate and it's unhelpful. Uh, and I'm going to endeavor to demonstrate that Arminianism is in no sense more synergistic than Calvinism. So let's kind of begin by clearly defining the terms monergism and synergism. According to Merriam-Webster, monergism is defined as the theological doctrine that regeneration is exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. Synergism is defined as conditions such that the total effect is greater than the sum of the individual effects. So just put more simply, we might say that monergism affirms that salvation is the work of God alone, and that synergism says that salvation is the result of some sort of cooperation or team-up between God and man. Given these definitions, it is, uh, or we can ask, is it accurate to say that Arminianism is more synergistic than Calvinism? I don't believe so. The only part of Arminianism that is synergistic is faith. The rest is the work of God alone. And so once it's understood that faith is not part of salvation, but rather functions as a necessary prerequisite or condition for salvation, then the charge that Arminianism is synergism begins to collapse. Again, let me quote for you a prominent Arminian theologian called or named Leroy Fourlines. He says, A believer's justification and regeneration were efficaciously decreed. Justification and regeneration are monergistic. They are solely the work of God. That's an Arminian theologian. He calls it conditional monergism because Calvinists can agree that faith is synergistic. R.C. Sproul, Calvinist, says, quote, when God regenerates a human soul, when he makes us spiritually alive, we make choices. We believe, we have faith, we cling to Christ. God does not believe for us. Get this, faith is not monergistic. But if faith is synergistic within both Calvinism and Arminianism, what sense does it make to classify Arminianism as synergism? This would imply that there is more synergism involved in Arminian soteriology than there is in Calvinist soteriology. But at what point is that the case? As it turns out, Arminians and Calvinists are both equally monergistic and equally synergistic. So, I mean, more significantly, they even agree on which aspects of the order of salvation are monergistic and which aspects are not. The only disagreement regards the order of these events. Uh, it does not, therefore, seem proper to me to say that the disagreement regards uh, monergism versus synergism. It's just it's an artificial distinction. Again, an Arminian, an Arminian author, 
uh, Andrew Stevens, had this to say about it. Quote, Arminianism is not synergistic. Although it is collaborative in meeting the condition for salvation, the salvation itself, along with regeneration, are accomplished start to finish by God alone. There is a big difference between the condition for salvation and salvation itself. These are simple distinctions that many Calvinists either do not take the time to get right or intentionally obscure. So, sorry, that was a lot. Uh, what are your thoughts, Will? Oh, I entirely, entirely agree. It's that whole thing where it's like, well, is the question that Brian always asks when he's out, he's like, well, is faith a work? As in, is faith a work that's counted as righteousness? Of course, faith is something we do, but is that something that is a work? So uh, in the sense of declared righteousness, um, no, it's just a condition, right? Um, so that's why whatever people start bringing up monergism, synergism, they go to monergism.com and they start dropping links with me. I just kind of roll my eyes because it doesn't, if you want to sit there and just and have a monergism, synergism debate, you, and you don't even know the terms of which people are using, uh, it's not a helpful discussion. So to yeah. try to make such a distinction, it's not helpful. Most everyone I know claims to be monergistic, and when they say they're synergistic, they merely mean that faith is a condition. So whatever, I don't really don't, that's such a weird debate for me. I don't really care about it uh, because of the labels. Now, if yeah. James White ever sees this, and I could totally see him taking that statement out of context though, maybe, <laughs> and going, see, he says it doesn't matter. I'm like, no, it does, it does. It's just the labels aren't helping <laughs> in this, yeah. this conversation because it's been hijacked. So yeah. the other thing on page 93, he says that chosen but free, this book begins with the assertion of the necessity of free will and human freedom. And only after establishing these necessities via philosophical argument, do we see encounter of any biblical discussion. I will say this it's because Dr. Geisler is actually more honest that there has to be a philosophical presupposition before we even come to the text. And he's a, and he was a philosopher. So exactly. Also, um, imagine making an argument against the will while also, denying its ability while trying to convince people with their will to believe what you're teaching. Funny how that works. I, I like, how do you, that is the four pointed triangle, my friend. It's well, I'm going to argue against the will and I hope this convinces you <laughs> as if you have the intellectual capabilities to do so. All right. <laughs> anyway. Um, also so, on page. Yep. Yeah, still on page 93. Uh, we've got, uh, Quote, while God tries to save as many people as possible, limited, however, by human free will, one thing he manages to do without hindrance is to sovereignly will the freedom of man to resist his salvific will. Page 93, repeated again on page 99. This is a complete misrepresentation of both Dr. Geisler's view and the traditional Arminian view. I have never seen any credible Arminian say that God is trying to save as many people as possible. Arminians believe that God desires that all people would believe and be saved, but God is not trying and presumably failing to save all people. According to Arminianism, God enables all people to believe through pervenient grace, and he does this successfully. At such times as people believe, God saves them, and again, he does this successfully. God is always successful in accomplishing whatever task he sets for himself. God is not trying to save unbelievers. White has mistaken what God desires to happen with what God tries to accomplish. 
but this is simply not an accurate portrayal of the historical Arminian view, or indeed just about any version of non-Calvinism. And uh, New Testament theologist says, uh, White sounds like a universalist here, except he isn't a universalist. Same logic. Everything is constructed as, quote, failure. <sighs> well, and it's true. I, actually, I, I say this all the time. Like, a lot of times, open theists and Calvinists kind of start from the same position. Like, if God foreknows, then he must, therefore, predetermine. Therefore, well, God must not know, because if he predetermined, he... Uh, if he, he would uh, be the author of evil. And then Calvinism says that, well, no, he just makes evil good, but it's good that we do evil because it pleases him and brings glory to him. And that kind of makes God an egomaniac. Like, oh, I'll, anything for glory. Yes, child rape, I decree it because it brings me glory somehow. Look at uh, White standing shoulder to shoulder with those open theists. <laughs> right? It is a similar presupposition. Um, so I just, I find that kind of funny. Um, and uh, Nick says that universal could only work in a reform paradigm. Um, so uh, go ahead. Let's keep let's keep trucking there, David. All right. Uh, here we're going to get into the uh, part you were going after before a little bit uh, on deadness. So overextending the metaphor. He really overextends the metaphor. Uh, but he seems a little inconsistent, like when it comes to the nature of spiritual deadness. And this is striking. So, on the one hand, he affirms that the spiritually dead have some abilities which physically dead people lack. He writes, quote, When the scriptures say that men are spiritually dead, we are not to understand this to mean that they are spiritually inactive. End quote. Page 83. Later, he says, quote, Dr. Geisler says that the extreme Calvinists believe unregenerate men cannot respond to God. This is simply untrue. Unregenerate men who are enemies of God most assuredly respond to God in a universally negative fashion. They respond in sin and rebellious, uh, rebelliousness, but respond they do. And quote, page 98. However, White then turns right around and says, quote, salvation must be completely a free grace and not a synergistic cooperation between God and man since man is not capable of cooperating any more than a corpse, end quote, page 100. Then again, quote, reformed assertion, or, or sorry, the reformed assertion is that man cannot understand and embrace the gospel, nor respond in faith and repentance towards Christ without God first freeing him from his sin and giving spiritual life, regeneration, end quote, page 101. Well, which way is it, Mr. White? Do the unregenerate have no more ability than a corpse, or is this a metaphor which shouldn't be taken to mean the unregenerate have no abilities at all? Because it looks an awful lot like White is trying to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to say that Geisler is misrepresenting Calvinism, uh, so he argues that the unregenerate are not spiritually inactive, but then he wants to say that the unregenerate can't do anything, such as believe the gospel, because they are dead. However, White can't have it both ways. If the unregenerate really have the same abilities as a corpse, then Geisler wasn't misrepresenting the Calvinist perspective. And if, on the other hand, they do have abilities which corpses do not, such as responding to the gospel negatively, then we have no reason in principle to say that their status as being spiritually dead precludes them from believing the gospel. So that's exactly kind of what sticks out. And that's usually the issue I have when I start talking about total depravity. It's a continual... Um, and I mean the Calvinist view of total depravity. It's a continual wanting the cake and eat it too. 
It's, well, no, no, man, we have to hold man responsible. But they, they're unable. They're a corpse. They're unable. They're a corpse. Oh, no, no. But man knows what they're doing. Man, man knows better. But they can't do anything. They can't do anything. But they know better, which means that they could do something. But they can't. Like, it's just, I, every time I talk, like, how's that circular logic of yours going? Like, yeah, I, I, it kills me. Um, I, so, it, it literally slays my spirit. <laughs> so, uh, and then, uh, did you want to talk about that quote on page 104? Yeah, sure. So White asks, quote, what does it mean to say that a spiritually dead person, while dead, can still reach out and accept the lifeline? How can that be? Dead men do not reach out for anything, end quote, page 104. Well, you tell us what it means, Dr. White. I mean, you could just as well ask White what it means to say that a spiritually dead person can respond to the gospel negatively or be spiritually active, as White explicitly says they can. The clue, of course, lies in the word spiritually. We are speaking of people who lack spiritual life, not physical or biological life. A spiritually dead but physically alive person can reach out for something, and for the same reason, a spiritually dead but physically alive person can believe the gospel when under the effects of prevenient grace. Um, also, on page 101, he says, unregenerate man is fully capable. This is what I mean. The cake and eat it, too. Yeah, unregenerate is man is fully capable of understanding the facts of the gospel. The facts of the gospel is that I'm a sinner. I need Christ. So these are the facts. I can understand these facts. He is simply incapable, though, due to his corruption and enmity to submit himself to that gospel. He surely responds to God every day negatively in rebellion and self-serving sinfulness. And I just quoted Dr. Jonathan Pritchett uh, with this is pseudo-intellectual blather. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my notes to the side. And that's because you're saying that they're, oh, they can understand it. They just can't respond to it. In order to understand, I have to be able to respond. Like, I can't under, like, think about it. Oh, I understand, uh, you know, trigonometry. I just can't respond and actually do trigonometry. What? But do yeah. you understand it? Yeah, I understand it. <laughs> so, but you can't do it? No. <laughs> like, it's, it's pseudo-intellectual blather. It's a self-contradiction. See, see how far that would get you on, a, on an exam, right? Oh, no, yeah, I understand the questions, but I, I just can't. I just can't answer them. <laughs> I just, sorry, sorry, uh, sorry, teacher. Can't do it. I know the answers, but I can't supply them. <laughs> it's, just, it's so bad. Oh, um, uh, yes. Moving on, though. Uh, yes. Here's a bit of hypocrisy, I think, on White's part. Uh, he chides Geisler for failing to deal with the arguments of the best defenders of Calvinism, saying, quote, The lengthy discussions in answer to these very objections found in reformed works from Calvin, Turretin, Hodge, Wright, or Raymond, to name just a few, are completely ignored, end quote. Um, and yet, which Arminians has White cited? Which of their answers to his objections has he interacted with? And fun fact, despite charging Arminianism with affirming all sorts of foolhardy doctrines, White doesn't cite hardly any Arminians throughout the entire book. Um, I think he cites Grinder and he cites uh, Henry Alford at one point. I'm not even sure if Alford's an Arminian. I know he's not a Calvinist. That's like two references to non-Calvinists besides Geisler in this book. And those aren't the best ones. And yet he's mad at Geisler for failing to deal with the best defenders of Calvinism. I mean, again, I'm not defending 
I'm not defending Geisler for, you know, not interacting with the best. Obviously, he should have. But then, wait, why is White ignoring the lengthy answers found to his objections found in the Arminian works, such as, you know, Arminius, Goodwin, Wesley, Shank, Fourlines, Piccarelli, Abasciano, Olsen, to name just a few. Well, White is right to criticize Geisler for uh, not interacting with the Calvinists. His failure to live up to his own expectation makes his criticisms look like the pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> Hello, pot. I'm kettle. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's absolutely that, uh, which is part of, we've showed that there's a lot of like hypocrisy and contradiction, uh, contradictory um, critiques. Like a lot of the criticisms that he's applying toward Geiser could also be applied meaningfully to him. Uh, and I think Nick in the chat said he quotes one Arminian in the entire book. I thought he quoted none. So uh, obviously it wasn't anything meaningful for it to stick in my mind. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, then he continues on to misread some scripture. Do you want to touch on that? And then we can close up shop. Yeah. Yeah. Comments for sure. So, yeah. Uh, so white utilizes first uh, Corinthians two fourteen to support the idea that the unregenerate cannot believe the gospel. So the verse reads, quote, but a natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, White focuses on the fact that the natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, which he assumes refers to the gospel. Now, if this statement appeared in a vacuum, that might be a reasonable interpretation. However, it does not. Paul is very clear on what he means by the phrase, things of the Spirit of God, in the preceding verses. Paul begins the chapter by saying that he did not speak with, um, with, uh, he didn't speak with wisdom when he first visited the Corinthians, because he did not want their faith to be based on wisdom. Then in verse 6, Paul begins explaining how he does speak with wisdom to the mature, but that this is not man's wisdom. Paul goes on to explain how this wisdom is from God and revealed by the Spirit in verses 8 and 10. That is what Paul means by the things of the Spirit of God. Moreover, Paul explicitly states that these things are revealed to people after they receive the Spirit. In other words, they believe. He says that we receive the Spirit in order to know these things in verse 12. So faith is a condition for receiving the things of God, i.e. wisdom. So why is just simply wrong to equate this phrase with the gospel? Paul couldn't be clearer in verse 1 that when he came to them, he did not come with this wisdom. So he can't come with, uh, so he didn't come with the things of the Spirit of God. Instead, he came to them with the gospel. That means they're not the same thing. But that would that would require meaningful exegesis. It w yeah, but you know, White likes to complain that people don't do meaningful exegesis. I just I don't see a lot from him. Next up, White tries to use John eight forty eight to support his case. Here, Jesus says that certain Jews do not hear or understand his words because they do not belong to God. White infers from this that one must belong to God before one can hear and believe. That's on page 112. Unfortunately, White ignores the Jewish context, just as he did when, it, uh, when discussing John 6:44. The interpretation that I propose understands those who belong to God to be the faithful Jews, and those who do not belong to God to be those rejecting the truths that God had revealed in Moses and the prophets. Jesus said, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John 5, 47. 
So we see that the Jews refused to believe on Christ, and the stated reason is that they did not respond positively to the revelation God had already given to them. Nothing is said about an eternal decree of God to save some and damn others. The cause of their inability to believe in Christ lay in their own refusal to heed the light that God had already given them, not an unconditional decree of God. Note well that Jesus says that if they had listened to Moses, they would have believed in him. Jesus states both the fact of their unbelief and the cause of their unbelief, willful rejection of the truth. Now, granted, the statement appears in John 5, but we'll see that the context of John 8 favors this reading as well. The Jews who are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah claim that Abraham is their father in verse 39. But Jesus responds sharply by saying that if they were children of Abraham, they would do the deeds of Abraham. And he then adds to this that the real father is the devil in verse 44. In verse 56, Jesus goes as far as to say that Abraham rejoiced when he saw Christ. And the implication is that if these Jews had the faith of Abraham, then they would also uh, rejoice at seeing Christ. So when we come to verse 47, Jesus has already established that these people are not living in right covenant relationship with God. No wonder he says that they do not belong to God and therefore cannot hear his words. They've rejected the light that God gave them, and they're blinded as a result. This was the result of their own decision. The text says nothing about the cause of their inability to hear being God's preordaining them basically to damnation. You have any thoughts on that before we hit his last text? No, no, that that I mean, you're you're you were very thorough. So <laughs> I, I do want to respond to uh, Jeremiah Williams in the chat, though. He says, it seems to me that in a white's view, God is not also the God of logic and reason, or that logic or reason are also withheld from us unless we have received it from God. Actually, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Jeremy, uh, he's a friend of mine. The, what, what it is that Augustine, if I'm going to be a snob about it, Augustine, Augustine, whatever. Augustine literally was like, well, I can't reconcile this because he kept, again, he equated uh foreknowing with predestining. He, so he said that basically logic must not apply to God. So logic and reason only apply to man, which is problematic <laughs> on a number of levels. So as you say, God's not logical. I, I don't know how you can affirm that Christ is the logos and a number of other issues. But anyway, um, go ahead, David. Sorry, continue on. I just wanted to make sure I responded to that in the chat. No, no, all good. So finally, White moves to argue uh, on the basis of Romans 3, 10 through 11, that regeneration has to precede faith because these verses state that, quote, no one seeks God. That's on uh, page 114. Now, White is correct that scripture tells us in no uncertain terms that man does not see God in Romans 3.11. Yet other texts indicate that men can seek God and that some do. Just a like few Acts 17. Yeah, oh, go ahead. yeah. Sorry, you gave it examples to your thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got Psalm 14, 2, Psalm 34, 10, Psalm 53, 2, Psalm 83, 16, Psalm 119, 2, Proverbs 8, 17, Lamentations 3, 25, Acts 17, 27, Hebrews 11, 6. Other texts actually command men to seek God. 1 Chronicles 16, 11, 1 Chronicles 22, 19, Jeremiah 29, 13, Matthew 7, 7, Matthew 6, 33, Luke 11, 19 through 10. Furthermore, Isaiah 55, 6 seems to teach that it is possible to seek God, but only when he is near. So I'm curious how White wants to deal with this issue. 
The Arminian doctrine of provenient grace, in my opinion, can reconcile all of these texts. On his own, man is unable to seek God. Yet, at such times, when God draws near to him and makes him able, man can seek after God, and if he seeks God, he will find God. White has got to find some way to explain all of these texts which state that man can seek God. By contrast, the Arminian can explain both the texts which say that man does not seek God and the ones which say that man does seek God. And that is exactly, uh, for me, when I, I mentioned that a lot, and it's like, well, think how cruel it is to say that, no, no, I'm commanding you to seek me, but I know you're unable to, but I'm going to hold you accountable like you could. This is like me, like if my daughter ended up getting uh, in a horrible accident and lost the ability to walk, and then I say, Eliana, run a marathon. And if you don't run a marathon, I'm going to not only beat you, but I'm going to beat you for all eternity. And she's like, Dad, I'm in a flipping wheelchair. I can't. And I go, well, too bad. I told you to do it anyway. I know you can't, but I'm going to command you to do it anyhow, and I'm going to hold you accountable like you could. That is a huge problem. Um, uh, New Testament Theologist, the church split. Do you have a Patreon? I know I've got one, but I want to support you when I get a job. Oh, dude, you don't have to do that. But yes, we do have a Patreon. <laughs> um, in fact, I'm actually trying to figure out how to report my taxes on Patreon. So um, we don't make a ton, but we do use it to uh, do things on the channel, support the channel. Um, we actually were able to use it to fly Brandy up here, who uh, Brandy is uh, our first, like, convert that we had on the channel uh, when we were really, really, really tiny. Uh, she argued with us, she was a progressive Christian, and she ended up repenting of a bisexual lifestyle and everything. We've had her on the channel. It's actually a pretty, pretty interesting story. Um, yeah, it was a good episode. Yeah, it was. She was a lot of fun. She is, like, the joy of the Lord just, like, spews off of her, but it was, she's, she's fantastic. Uh, and just, she talks about, like, and, uh, how the God, like, pretty much talk to her directly. And it's like, you know, my old Baptist roots would have a real problem with that. But now I'm like, look, man, God works in all sorts of ways. I ain't, I ain't to say anything. So if God used the, whatever it was to speak to you and he used the Holy Spirit to speak to you, who am I? So yeah, uh, you can support us on Patreon. We do use that for that. Also, we do use it for ministerial reasons um, as well. So uh, you can do that. Uh, and so anyway, um, with that being said, this is just the first four chapters and this is a breeze. Like this was us, I mean, I felt like David and I were trying to truck through some of our thoughts here, um, just because there's so many. Uh, and uh, honestly, I, I am, I don't think there's another word for it besides appalled by one, the misrepresentation, and two, the absolute logical contradictions and errors. I cannot, if I tried to draw a graph on this, it would be a mess. Because one moment you're saying mankind can, then you're not saying that they can't, and then you're saying that that the Calvinism is the true middle ground, but then you argue for coercion. It's so bananas. I can't even uh, wrap my mind around it. I really can't. I just, it's so frustrating. And, the, uh, and so from me, from the IFB background, I have, I don't know if you've run into this too, David, but the people who've left the IFB or other similar legalistic groups, um, a lot of them jumped into the reform tradition. And uh, what ended up happening, the reason why is one, because IFB is still KJV only, and he wrote a book 
on King James Onlyism. It's actually pretty decent. Um, and so he writes this book there. So a lot of people go, oh my gosh, who's this guy? Oh, Sola Scriptura. Yeah, screw legalism, Sola Scriptura. And that is a reform doctrine. So they all just, the reform must got it right. And they jump in the reform doctrines. Um, and it bothers me because it's actually, and I, I, uh, I'll say this relatively boldly, I honestly believe Calvinism is untenable. And I know, I'm not sure if you would agree with me on that. I know there's a lot of brilliant Calvinistic thinkers, but I honestly think what once you bring it under scrutiny, it's untenable to live Calvinism consistently. Yeah. Um, so I, I have a real problem with it. And I think uh, a lot of people got it wrong. I love my Calvinist brothers and sisters, but I do believe it kind of makes, uh, I was told by one of my friends who's a Calvinist that I make it out like he's the angry ogre in the sky. I'm like, kind of though. I mean, I don't know how you can't not see that where it's like, well, I'm going to tell you to child in the wheelchair who can't run. I'm going to tell you to run a marathon and hold you accountable like you could do otherwise. Um, I don't know how you can't see that as some sort of like, wow, that doesn't seem benevolent. That seems that actually seems rather evil um, or at least unjust and cruel. So I, I just, I, again, I just, I don't know how you get around that. Um, and I don't know, David, I'm speaking some spicy stuff right now. I'm getting a little saucy, but these are just things I can't avoid when it comes to logic. But again, logic apparently doesn't apply to God or something. I don't know. And yet they're going to tell you that you can't account for logic in your worldview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the irony, isn't it? You can't account for logic in your worldview, even though philosophy is garbage. <laughs> Unless I'm using philosophy, then of course my my philosophy is proper. Um, yeah, man, I don't know. This is just a little bit. So, do you have any final thoughts before we close out? No, 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 no. Um, hopefully, we haven't gotten too spicy. Again, we're not. We we don't hate Calvinists. We don't hate James White. Um, but. Frankly, at the scholarship level, no, this book is, um, it's terrible. It, it really, there's just not another way to say it. Um, you know, the, the blatant misrepresentation of um, other perspectives is just, there's not an excuse for it. And quite honestly, that's what uh, upsets me more than anything else about it. I agree. Um, and, and when it comes to the scholarly field, it, it, you know, you have to be so careful to represent everyone properly. Otherwise, you're going to get called out on it. And, yeah. um, you know, bad preacher clips down here saying faith, not logic. And that's uh, sadly kind of the mentality that comes with a lot of this stuff. Like, don't think about it. Just believe it. Uh, no, that's nonsense. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's not good. And I think White has better work. He has done better work um, than this. And I just find it sad that this is has become the textbook manual for people to study Calvinism because I don't think it represents Calvinism well. And I feel like he doesn't own the things that need to be owned as well as he should. Like, just own it, man. Like, I, saw, I was reading this, like, okay, it sounds like you're just trying to play gymnastics, just trying to get around some of the, the conclusions. And I just want, that's why I respect people like Dr. Chris Date, even though I disagree with him. I'm like, yeah. that man at least owns it. He owns, he's like, I'm a, he's like, I'm a determinist. Um, I'm also a physicalist. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. You're at least honest. I appreciate that. Um, and the, the other good thing about Chris is, you know, we can just have a good banter with Chris where we're going to heal. He's not afraid to go as deep as you want in the text. And he's just, I don't, I don't think he would call himself an evidentialist, but he argues like an evidentialist. He's considered <laughs> like, what is the context here? Like, let's do the, let's do the exegetical homework. 
let's just discuss the text. And I love those kinds of conversations. I love to just go as deep as I can in the text, you know, bring the contextual arguments, do the word studies. Those are the best kinds of um, conversations I have with Calvinists. And we just, we don't, we don't get it in this book. In this book, it's like, if you don't agree with me, then like, you're he's Catholic. Gonna, yeah, you're, you're, you're standing with Rome or you're, uh, you're, you've got some moral issue. You're so proficient at trying to get around the, the, the freedom of God. Um, it's just so much poisoning the well and stuff. And yeah, I mean, that's one reason I really do prefer <laughs> the conversations with Chris Day is because uh, as much as we've disagreed on the Calvinism issue, he's never like tried to ascribe bad motives to me over it. Right, right, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just think that there's better work out there. And as uh, and you're right, he does argue like an evidentialist. As an evidentialist, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm a, I, I, my apologetic is from an evidential uh, perspective. My philosophy is from evidentialism, internalism, foundationalism. Yeah, boy. Um, which I know that puts you in a philosophical minority, but whatever. I don't care. It's it works. Um, it's still anyway. dope. Yeah, it's, I'm cool. <laughs> um, anyway, guys, uh, I appreciate David coming on. Um, with, and of course, you can check out his channel with Faith Because of Reason. Check out his work that is done on presuppositional apologetics and Calvinism. He's got a lot of it on there. There's a lot of content for a guy who's like, yeah, I uh, just read a lot. <laughs> uh, you got a lot of really good content. Uh, it's actually very scholarly. Um, more so than mine. I'm dead serious. Like on my channel, I do both scholarly work and a lot of banter. Um, if you guys want pure, unadulterated scholarship of somebody just approaching it from that perspective with quotes and everything, please follow David's, David's uh, channel. It, it'll be helpful. Um, if you guys just want the banter with the, with the academia, hang out here. Um, but I can't say that we won't get in the weeds and completely derailed because there's a joke we just can't help ourselves with. So uh, anyhow, thank you guys for tuning in to the church split. Take care and God bless.